Hello and welcome to the History of the Germans, episode 93, Frederick II's Afterlife. On July 7th, 1285, a sunny day in the city of Wetzlar, a day's ride north of Frankfurt, acrid smoke rises from a mighty pyre built up just outside its walls. The pyre was for an emperor, or at least for a man who claimed to be the Emperor Frederick II. This man had shown up in the Rhineland, had gathered followers, had set up a court and sent letters to princes and cities across the realm. Envoys had come from as far as Italy to find out whether the Stupor Mundi had indeed returned. King Rudolf of Habsburg had to turn up in person at the head of an army to sort things out. Just before the fires were lit, the fake emperor called on his followers to proceed to Frankfurt as planned, where he would reappear in three days' time. He did not reappear in Frankfurt, but in Utrecht, where the impostor was hanged. The next sighting was in Lübeck in 1286, where he was again executed. In 1295 he was again captured and burned at the stake. The myth of the emperor who lives and does not live persisted over the centuries. Sometimes in the 14th or 15th century the myth transferred from Frederick II to Barbarossa, who now dwelt in the Kriffhäuser mountain, waiting to be called. Frederick II was relegated to a secondary role amongst the great medieval emperors. Until, in 1927, a hitherto unknown writer, Ernst Kantorowicz, published his biography of Frederick II. This book became the most intensely discussed and the most controversial biography of a medieval ruler, full stop. Its view of the emperor was suffused with the ideology of the Georgikreis. Hitler allegedly read it twice. It was on Goebbels' bedside table. But at the same time, Klaus von Stauffenberg, the leader of the July plot to assassinate Hitler, was a friend of Kantorowicz, and Admiral Canaris, another key conspirator, asked for the biography of Frederick II to read before his execution. Its Jewish author disliked the Nazis despite his own extreme right-wing views. He fled Germany in 1938 and distanced himself from his most famous work. In the US, he got caught in the nets of McCarthyism when he refused to swear an oath to fight communists. A rare case where the biographer's biography is almost as fascinating as his subject. Well worth exploring. Now, before we start, just a reminder. The History of the Germans podcast is advertising free, thanks to the generous support from patrons. And you can become a patron too and enjoy exclusive bonus episodes and other privileges from the price of a latte per month. All you have to do is sign up at patreon.com slash historyofthegermans or on my website historyofthegermans.com. You'll find all the links in the show notes. And thanks a lot to Bram M., Chris C., and Diana A., who've already signed up. Ah, and another thing. I'm planning a Q&A session, well, maybe next week or in two weeks' time. So if you have any questions relating to the podcast, the history we've gone through these last two years, or more general topics, just send them to me at historyofthegermans at gmail.com, or on Twitter at Germans History, or on my Facebook page, History of the Germans Podcast. But now back to the story. When Emperor Frederick II died in 1250, many people refused to believe it. For some, it was impossible because it failed to match with the predictions of Joachim of Fiore. Others remembered how the popes had announced Frederick's death many times before, only to find him returning on the prow of a ship or at the head of an army. 
why would it be true this time round? So, almost immediately stories began to circulate that Frederick II wasn't dead, but hiding from his enemies. Other claimed that he had gone on a long pilgrimage to wash away his sins. And as the Eritrean Sibyl had pronounced a thousand years earlier, it will sound also among the peoples he lives and he does not live. In 1257, betting shops in Florence were still taking odds that Frederick II was alive. As time went by, and the natural lifespan of the emperor would have been spent, even if he had survived the illness in 1250, these tales of the emperor drifted into the realm of mythology. As we discussed in the last episodes, the two great institutions of the Middle Ages, the empire and the papacy, collapsed in the five decades following Frederick's death. The disappearance of these coordination mechanisms led to a period of extensive warfare and feuding, even beyond the endless wars we have seen so far. Constant violence affected in particular the people in the countryside, whilst in the cities factional infighting continued and the gap between the rich and poor expanded. Moreover, the great economic boom that had fueled developments in the last 300 years had come to an end. And this is before we even talk about the Black Death. So for the common people, Frederick II, the most autocratic ruler in the Middle Ages, became a symbol of a lost order, a protector of the vulnerable. Legends emerged that he had not died but had ridden in full armour into the burning crater of Mount Etna, where he still lives, waiting for the right time to free the people. These stories gained ever more currency after the burning of the false Frederick in Wetzlar that I mentioned at the top of the episode. When his remaining followers dug through the ashes of the pyre, they found no bones, a clear sign that the Almighty had rescued Frederick from the flames. He was clearly still around. In the 14th century, the story coalesces with a number of other medieval prophecies, some we've heard before. Here is how Oswald der Schreiber summarizes the prophecy. Quote, in all countries, a hard time sets in. A feud flares up between the two heads of Christendom, a fierce struggle begins. Many a mother must mourn her child, men and women alike must suffer. Rapine and arson go hand in hand, everyone is at everyone else's throat, everyone harms everyone else in his person and his belongings. There is nobody but has cause to lament. But when suffering reaches such a pitch that nobody can ally it, then there appears by God's will the Emperor Frederick, so noble and so gentle. Full of courage, men and women at once stream together to the journey overseas. The kingdom of God is promised to them. They come in crowds, each hurrying ahead of the other. Peace reigns in all the land. Fortresses threaten no longer and there is no need to fear force any more. Nobody opposes the crusade to the withered tree. And when the emperor hangs his shield upon it, the tree puts forth leaf and blossom. The holy sepulchre is freed from now on no sword need to be drawn on its behalf. The noble emperor restores the law for all men. All heathen realms do homage to the emperor. He overthrows the power of the Jews, though not by force of arms. Their might is broken forever and they submit without struggle. Of the domination of the clergy almost nothing remains. The high-born prince dissolves the monasteries altogether. He gives the nuns to be wedded. Unquote. The writers of these days following the Black Death are more than a hundred years removed from the day Frederick II had died. In a world where books are handwritten manuscripts and news are word of mouth, the prophets are getting their Fredericks mixed up. 
Initially, the emperor people hoped for was clearly Frederick II, but now it is just Frederick. Soon all these myths get transferred to the person of his grandfather. The Etna is replaced by the Kiffhäuser and the clean-shaven Frederick II with the red-bearded Barbarossa. For almost 500 years, Frederick II disappears from the people's minds. As the romantic poets of the early 19th century dream of the splendor of the medieval empire, Frederick II barely gets a mention. That does not even change much in the late 19th century. There is a lot of scholarly work done on Frederick II, but he does not feature in the famous debate between Heinrich von Siebel and Julius von Ficker. Giesebrecht's six volumes Geschichte der Kaiserzeit, the work that graced most German middle-class households, ends with the death of Barbarossa. The problem was that Frederick II did not quite meet the Prussian demands they had on a medieval emperor. Yes, he may be shaped into an Enlightenment absolute monarch, he was anti-clerical and tolerant on religion, so a sort of forerunner of his namesake, Frederick the Great. But there was his policy stance in Germany, which disqualified him. He had sacrificed centralized imperial power for the wars in Italy, aiding to the fragmentation and subsequent weakness of the Holy Roman Empire, so he was out for the Protestant Prussians. And the Austrians also had little enthusiasm for Frederick II. They did like his supranational approach, but they could not embrace his lukewarm Catholicism and certainly not his conflict with the papacy. So he may have not been embraced by the Germans, but he became a hero of the Italian Risorgimento. All the things that disqualified him in the eyes of the Prussians and the Austrians were exactly the things the Italians were looking for. Frederick's reforms in the Kingdom of Sicily, his focus on justice and independent courts, struck a chord with Italian writers in the late 18th and early 19th century, as did his opposition to the papacy. And when Garibaldi and the House of Savoy embarked on Italian reunification, Frederick's reign was painted as the last attempt to unify Italy under one ruler, and to break the worldly power of the popes. Frederick's court of poets was celebrated for the first flowering of the Italian language and literature and art. So as late as 1978, Italian schoolbooks stated that Frederick II's aim was to unify the three Italies, the South, the Papal States and the Northern Italian communes, into one polity under his enlightened absolutist rule. There's a story in Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's diaries about his journey to Italy in the 1790s. The great poet gets into a conversation with some locals, who praise Frederick II and his enlightened rule. Goethe notes in his diary that he did not have the heart to tell them that Frederick II had just died the previous year. He thinks they're talking about Frederick the Great of Prussia, who was also Frederick II. Who else could they have meant? The Frederick II they meant, and we talk about, did not feature anywhere in Goethe's consciousness. When Goethe comes to Palermo, neither the cathedral nor the imperial tombs get even mentioned. So Frederick was left well alone as far as the Germans were concerned. When he appeared, then not as a German, but as a European figure. Jakob Burkhardt, the great Swiss historian, described him as the first modern man, which was not meant as a compliment. Nietzsche lists him as one of the great figures in history, alongside Caesar, Alcibiades and Leonardo da Vinci, men so far above their contemporaries they are incomprehensible and beyond the judgment of mere men. But despite his admiration for the last Hohenstaufen emperor, Nietzsche did not produce any major work or treatise to raise his profile. 
That job was left to the George Kreis, a circle of young, exclusively male intellectuals around the poet Stefan George. George was born in 1868. A precocious child of the lower middle class family, he had literary ambitions even as a teenager. He taught himself Norwegian because he wanted to read Ibsen in the original, and he did the same for Italian to be able to read his favorite Renaissance poets, in particular Dante. He thoroughly disliked the Germany of Kaiser Bill. The way he saw it, literary production was either celebrating the boorish nationalism of gunboat diplomacy and the search of a place in the sun, or he got bogged down into the gritty realism of the social divisions of the time. In his disgust, he went travelling to England, Switzerland and France. In Paris, he encountered the French symbolist poets Verlaine and Mallarmé, who had a huge influence on him. Symbolists believed that poetry should be released from rigid conventions. They applied free, highly personalized metaphors and images to create subjective feelings and intuitions in the reader. They had the idealized conviction that beyond the material world there was another plane of reality that could only be glimpsed through the responses to art. What on God's earth am I talking about? What has French symbolist poetry to do with medieval emperors and German history? Bear with me. It will make sense in a moment. Here we go. Our poet Stefan Georges coming back to Germany, head full of fleur du mal and aestheticism. He divides his time between Berlin, Munich and Heidelberg and founded a literary school of his own, the Georgekreis, held together by the force of his personality. The Georgekreis becomes a major force in the early 20th century and several leading intellectuals were members or associated with it. They were properly weird. They were a cult, not a discussion group. There were aesthetes who replicated the world of ancient Greek philosophy, including the concept of sexual relationships between an older mentor and his youthful disciple. In 1904, George goes full Hadrian and declares that one of the youths he so desired, Maximilian Kronberger, who had died aged 16, was a god, and he wrote a whole cycle of poems to his glorification. But just to clarify, though George is clearly showing signs of pedophilia, there is no indication he had ever acted on his impulses. Now, what the Georgikais actually believed politically, apart from the idea that Stefan George was der Meister, the master whose word was final and to be obeyed, is a bit hard to grasp. The whole concept of aestheticism is the idea that art operates on a different level to reality. The job of art was to generate an emotional sensation that transports the reader into a different realm of consciousness. This alternative reality was distinctly elitist and populated by literary and artistic geniuses. The Georgikaisers had no truck with the great unwashed and was unabashedly authoritarian. Which brings me to the one vaguely political and highly controversial concept the Georgikais endorsed, the idea of a secret Germany. This, the Geheimes Deutschland, was some sort of egalitarian brotherhood of superior beings past and present that represents the true Germany. To them, the saber-rattling nationalism of the Wilhelmine society had nothing to do with the true Germany. Hence, George and his acolytes were deeply opposed to the First World War as they feared a moral and military catastrophe, pretty much the one that materialized. After the war, the circle expanded further as young men coming back from the front into a world of street fighting, rumors of a stab in the back and hyperinflation searched for an escape into this imaginary secret Germany. 
One of their best-known members was Friedrich Gundolf, a historian and literary critic. His main work, a biography of Goethe, has all the hallmarks of the Georgikas. Rather than sticking to the banal realities of the great poet's life, Gundolf aimed to provide the reader with an emotional experience of Goethe and his works. And this same concept, telling history not just as it was, but also as it felt, went for the other great biographical work coming out of the Georgikais, the biography of Frederick II by Ernst Kantorowicz, a work that will catapult the emperor from obscure subject of historical seminars to household name. Ernst Kantorowicz, or Ika, as he wanted to be called, had joined the Georgikais in 1920 when he was 25 years old. Not much in his past qualified him to write a seminal work of history. He was born the son of a wealthy Jewish family from Poznan. Poznan was and is an important Polish city and home to the graves of the ancient Polish rulers, including Boleslav the Brave. But at the time of his birth, it had been part of Prussia for a hundred years, following the division of Poland in 1793. Young Ernst grew up as a fully assimilated member of the German-speaking elite in this majority Polish town. Ika attended the leading grammar school in Poznan together with the science of Prussian offices and other members of the local upper classes. His family was lukewarm in the practice of their religion and some of the cousins had completely abandoned Jewish practices, without converting though. In his mind, he was first and foremost German and then Jewish. Like many members of his class across Europe, he volunteered within five days of the outbreak of World War I, aged just 19. He spent almost three years at the Western Front, gained an Iron Cross for bravery, and was wounded twice. When he returned in 1918, Germany was in chaos. His hometown, Poznan, was returned to the newly created state of Poland. There was resistance from the German inhabitants of Poznan, a military resistance Ernst Kantorowicz joined. When the militia collapsed, Kantorowicz came to Berlin, where the November Revolution was in full swing. Two republics had been declared in parallel. One was the Weimar Republic, and the other a communist republic, declared by the Spartakists. There was open street fighting between the communists and the ultra-right-wing Freikorps. The fighting ends when the Freikorps murder the Spartakist leaders Karl Liebknecht and Rosa Luxemburg. Iker had joined the Freikorps, though his exact role is a bit vague. A year later we find him in Munich, again joining a Freikorps that is overthrowing an extremely left-wing government in the state of Bavaria. Quite a lot of Ernst Kantorowicz's biography to that point is not unusual. Jewish organizations had called upon their members to volunteer for the war, and they joined in disproportionately high numbers. Despite an ever-intensifying anti-Semitism within the army, 21,000 Jewish soldiers were promoted to officer or petty officer. Ernst Kantorowicz was one of 18,000 Jewish soldiers who received the Iron Cross. Whether there were many Jews in the Freikorps in the immediate aftermath of the war is not well researched, so we cannot say how unusual it was. But again, his upbringing was that of an upper-middle-class German who was nationalist, monarchist and firmly opposed to socialism. Once things settle down, Eker goes to university in Heidelberg. He studies economics with the intention of later joining the family firm upon graduation. Whilst in Heidelberg, he is initiated into the Georgikreis. He had met Friedrich Gundolf before through his sister, who had married Arthur Salz, another member of the Georgikreis. He takes part in the esoteric discussions and falls very much under the spell of the Meister, even adopting his distinctive handwriting skills. But 
Academically, he's nothing to write home about. He moves a bit off economics and writes his PhD on economic history, though his dissertation is broadly considered to be a bit meh. Which is why it is so surprising that Stefan George encourages him to write a biography of Frederick II, one of the select historic figures that populated the pantheon of greats in his secret Germany. Kantorowicz is not a historian at this point. He has not written any prose of note. And it is not that George did not have any other intellectuals he could have taken the idea to. But no, it is Ernst Kantorowicz he asks. And Kantorowicz delivers. It takes him three years from what must have been a standing start, given no material prior knowledge of the subject, and no precedents to follow. No one had ever published a full biography of Frederick II before his work comes out in 1927. And when it comes out, it creates a massive splash. The first thing that reviewers note is that there are no footnotes. None at all. Then there was the language. You heard me quoting some of his writing in previous episodes, but let me just take this example, talking about a key moment in the Sixth Crusade. Quote, With full imperial panoply and accompanied by his retinue and friends, the band, and hence no longer in the community of the faithful emperor, entered the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Here, without the intermediary of the church, without bishop, without coronation mass, Frederick II, proud and unabashed, reached for the royal crown of Holy Jerusalem. Striding to the altar of the sepulchre, he took the crown and placed it upon his head. The book is full of such vivid descriptions of personalities and of events. It was what the Georgikais were striving for telling it as it felt, and thereby transporting the reader into another level where he could glimpse an image of a higher truth. Stefan George, whatever you think about him, was a master of the German language. He at times lived in Kantorowicz's flat, had heavily edited the book, and many phrases and sentences can be traced to his style. A style very different to historical scholarship. The thing that is today the most controversial thing is that many readers loved the brazen celebration of Frederick's authoritarian rule. When Kantorowicz says that, quote, he had reigned, ruled and raged in Italy for over a decade, end quote, that was not a criticism. Neither was he disapproving when he titles the section about the restructuring of his kingdom as the tyrant of Sicily. Kantorowicz was on the extreme right politically and he believed that a state should be ruled by an elite. Democracy, the rule of the people where his valet had the same vote as himself, had no appeal to him. He celebrated Frederick as the most intolerant emperor the West had ever produced. And this view appealed to a large section of society who saw the Weimar Republic as a failed experiment, put in place by the Allies and treasonous politicians who had signed the capitulation in 1918. There were many, the Nazis, the Communists, and quite a few in between who saw dictatorship as the only chance for the country to get out of the position of political and economic weakness. The section this book is criticized for most is the very last paragraph, where Kantorowicz summarizes Frederick II and his significance as follows, quote, The fiery lord of the beginning, the seducer, the deceiver, the radiant, the merry, the ever young, the stern and mighty judge, the scholar, the sage who leads his armed warriors to the muses' dance and song, 
He who slumbers not, nor sleeps, but ponders how he can renew the empire. The greatest Frederick is not yet redeemed. Him his people knew not, and sufficed not. Lives and lives not, the Sibyl's word, is not for the emperor, but for the German people. Unquote. No doubt, what Kantorowicz puts out here is the hope for a new emperor, who leads the folk back to its rightful place. And that is why Norbert Kantor, one of the foremost medievalists, said of Kantorowicz that had he not been Jewish, he would have become a Nazi. Indeed, the biography of Frederick II was very popular with the Nazis. Hitler is said to have read it twice. It was always on Goebbels' bedside table. Mussolini received a copy as a gift. Now, before I go into the discussion whether or not one should or should not read and quote Kantorowicz, let me quickly bring you the tale of his life after the publication of the book. The biography of Frederick II became an absolute bestseller. It was the most intensely discussed history book of its time, in large part because it was as much about the current state of Germany as it was about medieval times. And it ran into strong opposition amongst academic historians. They regarded the style as unprofessional. The established way historical scholarship was to be presented was to tell the story as it was, as Leopold von Ranke had stipulated. Every event described had to be proven by sources, and where there were no sources, it had to be left open. There was no room to imagine events. They also objected to Kantorovich's use of liturgical texts and prophecies to help the reader to get into the mindset of the times. So Kantorovich spent the next few years writing the appendix to his biography, an incredibly detailed set of references for the main book. This appendix is still seen today as an impressive work of scholarship and an important guide for anyone diving into the details of Frederick II's time. It did, however, not always prove the veracity of some of his more lurid descriptions, including the one about the coronation in Jerusalem I quoted before. In 1932, once the appendix was published and his academic credentials confirmed, did he become a professor at the University of Frankfurt. Still very young, at only 37. This did not last long, though, as he was sent on leave shortly after the Nazis took power in 1933. He would have been dismissed under the new race laws for being Jewish, was it not for a clause in the law protecting Jews who had received the Iron Cross or similar commendations. Still, he was not allowed to teach. Though he did manage to hold one seminar in 1935, talking about the secret Germany of Stefan George and that it had nothing in common with the current political system. He did not dare to name the NSDAP and Hitler by name, but still, this is one of the few, and some say the only lecture at any German university, criticizing the Nazis after they had taken power. In 1938, shortly after the Reichskristallnacht, he fled first to England and then to the US. Attempts to rescue his mother and sister failed, largely due to the lack of funds needed to meet Swiss visa requirements. They perished in Theresienstadt. He settles in the US first as a professor at Berkeley and then at Princeton, where he writes several seminal works of high scholarship. After the war, he writes to his cousin that Germany is now as foreign to me as ancient Greece, and that he wishes to have nothing more to do with the place. But he will bring Germany back one more time. 
1949, the University of Berkeley, in order to preempt an intervention by the House Un-American Activities Committee, asked its staff to amend their oath of office. We are in the middle of McCarthy's witch hunt, when many intellectuals, often Europeans, lose their right to work and fall into poverty. The oath the university proposes as a preemptive measure to keep the zealots out of campus was comparatively mild. Quote, I do not believe in and am not a member of, nor do I support, any party or organization that believes in, advocates or teaches the overthrow of the United States government by force or by any unconstitutional means. Unquote. When this amendment to the oath gets discussed in the Senate of the University, Kantorowicz, the man who had fought the communists in the streets of Berlin in 1919, rose up and declared his refusal to sign this oath. He said, referring to the process of Hitler taking control of the state, quote, This is the way it begins. The first oath is so gentle that one can scarcely notice anything at which to take exception. The next oath is stronger. The time to resist is at the beginning. The oath to refuse to take is the first oath. End quote. His refusal cost him his job, something he could ill afford as his fortune had been lost and only his taste for expensive suits and food was left. He fought his case through the courts and won, though by the time he had been lucky enough to already have moved on to Princeton. Okay, if you've listened up to this point, first up, thank you. This was probably not what you expected and what the podcast had been about so far. And now I guess you're wondering two things. A. Why did Dirk find this story so important? And B. Why did he use such a controversial source in the podcast? Let's start with A. What makes this an important story is that I sometimes feel the way people look at the interwar period is one where there is black and white. Protagonists are painted either as Nazis and their sympathizers and enablers, or as victims or as resistance fighters. The reality was a lot more shades of grey or brown, and Kantorowicz is a great example for that. In the 1920s, Kantorowicz was as far right as you can get. As he said himself, to the right of him is only the wall. He was authoritarian, elitist and anti-democratic. But was he a Nazi or at least an enabler? You sure can argue that his glorification of authoritarian rule and his longing for a messianic redeemer had contributed in a small way to the acceptance of Nazi ideology. Was he a victim? Certainly, even though he escaped the worst of the suffering. Was he a resistance fighter? Well, in a small way he was. His lecture in 1935 was an audacious act of resistance in a brutal dictatorship. And more importantly, the biography of Frederick II and the ideas of the Georgikais influenced not only Nazis, but also the July plotters around Klaus Schenk von Stauffenberg, who attempted to assassinate Hitler in 1944. He was all of the above, villain, victim and resistance fighter. And if he wants an excuse, he could say that most Germans in the 1920s could not imagine where their exaggerated nationalism and anti-democratic stance would lead. But once he'd seen what happened when ideologues take over, he knew he had no more excuses, and that resistance wasn't optional. And that gets me to B, why I quote him extensively. And the answer is because he's an amazing writer. He's able to conjure up the whole scenario before your eyes in a way only the best writers can. 
and I am with him when it comes to his approach to history writing. Yes, it's important to stick to the facts and I do my best to do that. But he did not write a piece of scholarship but a piece of historical writing. And for that it is important to create the stage on which the listener and reader can experience the events taking place, what people think and feel when they see the Emperor act. There is not much information about that and sometimes one has to conjure this up from sources about similar events. In the end, this is what compelling history writing is, bring the events of the past to life. And Kantorovich does that incredibly well. But one has to use his writings carefully. He is the fugu, the Japanese blowfish of history writers. Incredibly delicious once you have carefully removed the poisonous inner organs. And finally, there is also a personal component. When Levi Roach told me the story of Ernst Kantorovich in the interview he kindly gave me some weeks ago, I went back to my uncle to ask whether he knew the book. Turns out my grandfather had read it in the 1920s and left such an impression that he took his sons to Puglia in the 1950s on some memorable trip. Forty years ago my father did the same with my brother and me, an experience that I have never forgotten, and left me with an enduring fascination with Frederick II, the seducer, the deceiver, the radiant, the merry, the ever young, the stern and mighty judge, the scholar, the sage. This is now really the end of season three. All that's left to do is the Q&A, which will probably happen next week or the week after. You've sent a lot of questions and that takes some time to do the research, so maybe patience is required. And then there may be a bit of a break as I'm plowing through the materials for the next season. I started some weeks ago, but I did not get anywhere yet near the level where I wanted to get to. We'll see how long this takes, but hopefully not too long. So, thanks a lot for listening, for your continued support, in particular from the patrons, and your understanding. Speak to you all soon. <laughs>